You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. Welcome to Radio Free Philosophy. My name is Kevin Brown. I'm Bob Urquhart. And today we're going to take on another question that we've gotten from a listener. And this one's a really interesting question um, emailed to us. It's asking, how have the philosophers in the past made it to a point that their opinions were held above all others and then came to be the norm? I think that's very much akin to asking, how does literature become classic? And I think a lot of the answer lies in endurance. And we spoke about the marketplace of ideas before. We spoke of the power of ideas. So, just as literature um, is well received by readers and stands the test of time, so are the ideas of philosophers. Yeah, I think that's a very good parallel. And we we often tend to think that the philosophers we see, the writings of philosophers that we see from the past, are the only ones that were written, and that in any given era in the past is probably not true. Like today, there's a lot more written than is going to survive the test of time. And probably it was the same in the past, or at least to some extent. Uh, you know, so one of the reasons that we still read Plato is because he's stood the test of time, not because Plato was the only one writing, and so we just kept reading him. There's, there's some vetting process that that is gone through it's not a formal vetting process per se but but uh, the writings do have to stand the test of time yeah you can see that vetting process even in say the new testament um, it comes out of the same period of time as plato and aristotle a few centuries give or take but there were many many gospels besides the four that were written but the four gospels in the new testament have stood the test of time and of course they were they were supported by the church, but many, many writings in the New Testament times did not make it into the New Testament. Same with the philosophers. There were many, many philosophers, but their writings, again, didn't stand the test of time and didn't um, pose the challenges, say, that Plato did. And uh, part of that, of course, is not simply that, that people liked what they read, but they recognized there was something substantial to it, because there's lots of examples of philosophical writings that uh, that many people uh, didn't like, but yet they stood the test of time as well, because they recognized that there was something significant that they were writing about, or some significant challenge that needed to be answered, even if it was uh, highly objectionable. I mean, that's why uh, you suggested uh, in a previous broadcast that... Uh, people read Marx, not necessarily because his writing is correct, although parts of it might be, but because there's something substantial going on there. There's something worth thinking about or uh, answering in some way. Sure, and sometimes a philosopher endures because that philosopher is quoted or is attacked or, or somehow rebutted by an eminent philosopher. One wonders if we'd be hearing about Heraclitus or Protagoras these days Plato didn't set out to show why they were wrong. Yeah, that's a very good point, because a lot of the philosophers from the past, we don't have any of their writings, or only fragments. 
Uh, a yes. lot of what we know about uh, uh, the philosophers before Socrates is courtesy of Plato and Aristotle, who talk about them. And because they talk about them, when they were, their writings were copied over, so were the excerpts. And, but that's about all we know. The, the original works of Heraclitus and Thales, we just don't have. But I wonder what it is about a philosophical idea that makes it recognized, even in its own time, as something that's worth talking about and not just being ignored out of hand. Probably the comprehensive nature of the idea is what makes it enduring. And perhaps it's, it's the extent to which it challenges us. For example, with Plato, he posited that this was not the real world. There was a, a really real world that we can't see, the world of forms. Now that in itself is quite challenging. And when you read it, you have to ask, is, he, is this really true? And, and so you pass the idea to other people, you discuss it with other people. So if a, if a philosopher's idea is eminently discussable, that leads people to debate and to, to inquiry, then that's what makes it a classic. That's what makes it get handed down. <clears throat> I suspect that part of it is not simply that the philosopher is expressing their opinion, but arguing for their opinion or reasoning. I mean, uh, there's, there's a, lot, a large confusion people seem to have between argument and opinion. We talk about this in logic class. It comes up yeah, in, in almost every philosophy class. Aren't these philosophers just giving us their opinion and nothing more? Well, if that were really true, then none of their writings would stand the test of time. I mean, if I just wrote about how I think the earth is flat, um, that's going to be ignored. Or even if I write about a, a more interesting opinion than that, if all I'm doing is telling you my opinion, that's probably going to be ignored. If I'm providing a good reasoning process behind it, or at least a compelling reasoning process, then that's going to take on more weight and people are going to feel obliged to consider it, uh, even if they end up rejecting the idea because there's something substantial going on. That's exactly right. There's a reasoning process, well defended. Plato um, defends his view against uh, Heraclitus and Protagoras by saying if we listen to those guys we wouldn't have truth. So he's saying that the foundation for truth has to be in the world of forms. And Aristotle even though he disagreed with large parts of Plato's theory took it on and dealt with the parts that he disagreed with without dismissing them because he recognized that Plato was doing something that couldn't be ignored. You have to address the reasoning and point out the problems with it. Sure, you have to explain change. Change is a fundamental reality. And Aristotle thought that Plato's idea of change was not as good as his. That, that, that Plato wasn't establishing a, a connection or interaction between the forms. So Aristotle um, comes up with what is called the, hylom the hylomorphic theory. And we can even trace this process ahead in time, closer to our own time, as a continuing conversation. And the voices that tend to come up again and again have something in common. They may be arguing for different points of view. You can consider uh, Plato and Aristotle as being on opposite sides of, of a, a question in the ancient uh, world. Uh, fast forward to uh, medieval philosophy and you can see uh, somebody like perhaps Anselm and Aquinas arguing different aspects. Fast forward even into the modern period, uh, Descartes and Locke. But the reason that we uh, pay attention to the conversation is because they're speaking to 
some fairly important questions and they're speaking about them in a non-trivial way. Sure. Um, the existence of God is a, is a vital burning question and Anselm addressed that and to do it properly he used Plato through the intermediary of Augustine and Aquinas was in the same situation. He had to rebut people who said there was no God and so he turned to the newly discovered Aristotle and used him as a mine to cull all this series of argumentation about uh, about the existence of God. He did, it, he did it very, very well. And of course, the more uh, people engage in this process, the more inertia it picks up on. And then if we were to discuss a certain question from a contemporary standpoint and ignore, let's say, the writings of Kant, well, we wouldn't have very much credibility right. if we were trying to talk about a a problem in epistemology and didn't even seem to understand Kant's theory on it, that would uh, raise questions about our own theory because mm -hmm. we haven't considered uh, those prior questions. And somehow a philosopher becomes more of a classic when another philosopher, well, I guess, supports him or even contravenes him but mentions him by name. And so you get more name recognition down through the centuries. Aquinas, for example, uses Aristotle a great deal, but seldom names him. He has so much respect for him, he just calls him the philosopher. So whenever anyone reads Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, he's being pointed back to Aristotle in the, in the 4th century BCE. So that's a long, long train of time. But Thomas Aquinas perpetuated the, um, the fame of Aristotle by just, just addressing him with awe as the philosopher. And help revitalize that, that fame in a way because uh, for, for several centuries Aristotle was all but forgotten in the West. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they recognized his importance in the uh, Islamic world and uh, commented on him and wrote about him extensively but it wasn't until we rediscovered all that that Aristotle sort of achieved the preeminence again. Mm -hmm. That seems to me to uh, to really lend credibility to what you're saying if you can be uh, important and regarded in one era and then uh, centuries later seen as still relevant and right. important. Rediscovered, revived, sure, sure. Now another reason that Aristotle is a classic philosopher is that he gave us a tool, an enduring tool that has stood the test of time, say 25 centuries, and that tool was called logic. He wrote in his Organon many of the, the arguments, the identifications of arguments, the fallacies that we use today in, in modern logic. And of course the reason we still uh, go back to Aristotle for this is because it's still useful and it's still relevant. We can still use the method for, for uh, knowledge acquisition even though the knowledge we're acquiring is more advanced than the knowledge Aristotle used it to acquire, the method remains uh, as effective. Sure. Whoever invented the, the shovel, for example, did a great service to humanity. And that, but that shovel has not really changed too much in design for all that time, for thousands of years. So the same as with logic. Um, we still use Aristotle's 13 fallacies that he named. We use um, his kinds of arguments. We use the categories sometimes. Sure, we've added a lot to it. Aristotle remains at the core of every logic course. It seems like one of the points we, we don't want to forget 
is is a point that uh, um, contributes to people's importance and, and fame today, and it's not anything new. That is the fact that that powerful or influential people recognize that there's something going on. I mean, take the the Stoics. Many of them were were prominent uh, because a particular Roman emperor uh, looked with favor upon what they were yes. doing. Uh, Seneca mm-hmm. uh, leaps to mind. Uh, unfortunately, when you fall out of favor that that <laughs> causes problems but I, I don't think that should be underestimated or the fact that uh, one of the stoic philosophers was himself a roman emperor marcus so aurelius sure, sure. so that that has to contribute somewhat to to one's uh, fame and respect even if it even as it does today of yes. course you 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 can't uh, uh have that perpetuate if, if it's all built on smoke and mirrors. There has to be something of substance that they're saying, and in Marcus Aurelius's case, there certainly was something of substance, but it doesn't hurt to have a little prominence. No, and sometimes um, a protected philosopher favored by the court can fall out of favor, as we saw with Seneca with Nero, but there was also Boethius, who was a court philosopher, and he fell out of favor, and he was condemned to prison and ultimately death, but he wrote his famous Consolation of Philosophy while in prison. And just those circumstances made him stand out as someone to be read when, whenever things don't go right in life. And I guess part of the question we're, we're trying to answer here is, what is it about these writings that is recognized as being important or influential such that we take them and use them or build upon them as opposed to the ones that, that we reject? And is there some standard uh, to appeal to, to to figure this out? Probably, it seemed to me that the standard is not just that they, they, they stand the test of time, but they address real issues, vital issues that are, are not tied to time and place. Who of us doesn't ask, what is reality? What is, it, what is really real? And what's the right thing to do? And how do we know anything? Can we know anything for sure? Now, a philosopher that tends to address these questions, would seem to me, would tend to be read over and over again through the ages and then become a classic. Certainly. And part of the problem is recognizing them as they're writing. Uh, Hegel uh, pointed out this, this problem very famously by saying, uh, the Isle of Minerva only flies at twilight. Uh, that is, you, you really need the perspective of time passing in order to figure out uh, which particular writings in philosophy or literature are going to stand the test of time. It's not at all clear today who's going to be the importantly regarded philosophers a hundred years from now. We might guess at some candidates, but mm-hmm. we could be totally wrong. But many of these great philosophers uh, died in obscurity and even poverty. It was, it was their ideas that were resurrected later and seen as important and influential. Like many artists, some of the classic artists lived very poor lives. But we recognize our art is classic today. And so what we've been touching on so far has kind of been a recurring theme in a lot of our broadcasts and, and recurring because important. That, that is, uh, philosophy has significant consequences. Ideas have consequences. And that probably more than anything else explains why a particular philosopher or philosophical work does stand the test of time because of the consequences it has, not only in its own time, but later as well. And so perhaps after the break, we can consider some more examples of that, maybe moving into more uh, uh, recent times.
Some thoughts from John Cleese. A surprising result of a recent survey was that the most asked question of American philosophers was neither what is the meaning of life, nor if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, etc., etc., but just what is it that philosophers do? The answer is quite a lot. America's philosophers are at work in corporations, labor unions, medical centers and hospices, and of course every day they provoke thinking thousands of colleges, universities, and high schools. Wherever they are, philosophers can ask questions that might just make your life richer and more fulfilling. So uh, do be careful of those falling trees, won't you? Unless, of course, you're not there. A message from the Philosophers of America, celebrating 100 years of thought. Now that we're back from the break, we can talk about more modern philosophers, as you suggested before, and perhaps the the giant of modern philosophy is Descartes, because Descartes posed a classic problem, on, namely, what can we know, and do we know anything? And he used his methodical system of doubt to to arrive at the conclusion that there is mind and matter, and that that gave us Cart what is called Cartesian dualism, and that set the tone for philosophy, for many centuries to come. Many people say that all philosophy is a footnote to Plato, but pretty much all modern philosophy has to deal with the dualism set up by Descartes. So in responding to Descartes, philosophers became classics. And one of the things that's always fascinated me about Descartes is his desire to make a, a break with the philosophy of the past um, and I, I suspect if, if you're of the opinion that all philosophers are doing is just conveying their, their own opinions, then Descartes might just look like another example of this. He's just doing something different for the sake of doing something different. But if you read him carefully, you notice that while he's saying some things that are, are uh, different on the surface, he's not really making as big a break with Aristotelian philosophy as he claims to be. He's using Aristotle's method. Uh, he's talking in Aristotelian language. So there's another perfect example of standing the test of time. Even somebody as, as um, concerned about starting anew as Descartes really isn't leaving the past behind entirely. And that gives us a clue not only to the importance of what Descartes is doing, but to the importance of Aristotle who can still be influential even in a case where somebody is rebelling against him. Sure. And again, that's one of the marks of a classic. If you have to deal with this person to continue with their philosophy, then that person's a classic. But now what Descartes seems to have done is divide the the road of philosophy into two by d dividing up reality into mind and matter. So Many philosophers were compelled to go down one road or the other, and that leads us to rationalism and materialism, and so those positions become classic. And not only classic because other philosophers have to deal with them, but classic because they become part of the uh, uh, jargon of everyday life. I mean, how many of us uh, talk about things in Cartesian dualistic terms? Uh, this is very, very common. Of course, nobody goes around saying, I'm a Cartesian dualist. <laughs> but if you start talking to them, 
they start saying things that are very Cartesian and probably wouldn't be in the common vocabulary were it not for somebody as influential as Descartes. Sure. I think a lot of paranormal beliefs um, take their springboard from Descartes' vision of mind and matter. Psychic healing and all this stuff. Sure. And uh, even, even things that seem completely out of the realm of philosophy mm -hmm. have their, uh, if not their genesis, then certainly some influence from philosophy. Uh, another good example of this comes from one of uh, Descartes' uh, major critics, an English philosopher named John Locke, who talked about uh, empiricism as being the only really viable alternative in, in epistemology, rationalism, uh, with its notion of innate ideas didn't, didn't make a whole lot of sense to Locke. And in defending empiricism, of course, the first thing he's doing is breaking with Descartes, but the second thing he's doing is endorsing Aristotle. Uh, he actually uses the Aristotelian phrase tabula rasa to mm -hmm. describe the mind. And then in uh, uh, another example of the philosophical ideas having uh, influence, uh, Locke's ideas had major influence in the world of politics uh, in several different ways. Ironically enough, uh, he was not only influential uh, with the American founders, mm -hmm. Jefferson in particular, but he was also influential uh, in the Russian Revolution for, for radically different reasons, but that just goes to show that the, the, the philosopher's ideas have consequences and that probably contributes to the fact that we're still interested in reading about John Locke. Indeed. But as Locke goes down this road, um, he's going to separate himself more and more from the material world and people who um, read him and be influenced by him will separate us even more. We're going to see how we do see in philosophy how Berkeley concludes that we can never know matter. Hume. Um, this, this is very radical thinking. But, and, and then when Hume um, asserts that we just can't know the real world, then someone like Kant uh, says, we've, I've got to do something to defeat this guy. I've got to prove that we, know, we can know something about reality. Sure, so one, one philosopher uh, um, reacts to another, but none of this occurs in a vacuum because these philosophers are living within a culture that has other interests as well, and it's not simply that philosophers are paying attention to other philosophers. Other people are paying attention mm -hmm. to philosophers and using their ideas and being influenced by them. In fact, you could see tangible evidence of this. You mentioned Kant in the world of art. Just take a look at the art uh, that was very common before Kant wrote in the 18th century. Uh, very representational kind of things uh, by people like Gainsborough who, who uh, did landscapes and, and portraits. And then took, take a look at the Impressionists mm. who all came after Kant. Uh, Kant was talking a lot about perception uh, and you can really see the difference. Now of course it's, it, it's, it's incorrect to say that Kant was the only influence on these artists like Monet um, and, and Van Gogh, but Van Gogh and Monet certainly knew about the ideas of Kant, even if they didn't read the Critique of Pure Reason, because they were in the culture that was aware of Kant, and so they couldn't help but be influenced by him. 
And that's the part I think that, that is often missed when people take a course in philosophy is the fact that philosophers don't live in a vacuum. They, they, they live in a world where they influence other people as well, even people who know nothing of philosophy. Sure. A good example would be the, the existentialist philosophers who um, rose just after World War II when the whole world seemed to go crazy and 15 million people died in that conflict. But many thinking people are saying, what is the essence of humanity? What, what have we done to ourselves? And some concluded, we have no essence. It's up to us to make our own. It's up to us to create meaning in our lives. And so existence became more important than essence. And th this whole school of philosophy became very influential in so many areas. Now, just as you mentioned, how Kant may have influenced the, the Impressionists, um, people like Sartre, existentialists like Sartre, um, influenced very much some religious thinkers. Uh, a man named Rudolf Bultmann was trying to uh, find the, the essential meaning of the message of Jesus. He was, a, he was a pastor, and the more he read of the existential philosophers, the more he realized that the whole purpose of religion and Jesus' message was to find meaning in life, to give new meaning in life, to, to make us more authentic people. So, in this way, philosophers have almost uns, untold ramifications in, outside the field of philosophy in every area. Now, I could see some people saying, uh, after we give these examples, well, why couldn't these people have saved themselves a lot of trouble and just ignored all this philosophy stuff? Uh, seems like the example of Boltmann, he, he could have uh, had a lot easier time dealing with his questions if he had just not read the existentialists. It would have been easier, but would he be closer to truth? And Bultmann was an honest man who wanted to find the truth. But to find truth, he needed tools. And so he turned to the classic tools that people use. Philosophy, in a sense, can be a tool. So um, Bultmann wouldn't be an authentic person if he didn't look at the world around him and see what people were saying. And in a certain sense, these, these ideas are, are, are not ideas that you can ignore. We've talked about this quite a lot in these broadcasts. I mean, how can you get through life without thinking about philosophical questions? Why am I here? Uh, what's the world made of? What is reality? Does God exist? These are questions that uh, seem to my mind to be unavoidable. And once you start asking them, if you really want to uh, dig deep and find some answers, then you have to consider these ideas, even the ones that seem objectionable. Sure. And even today, philosophy is in the background. Um, we see people still striving for truth, but asking, is there an ultimate truth? And in the background of, of that question for many, many people is the philosophies of, uh, or other philosophies of deconstructionism and postmodernism, which hold that we, we create truth as we go along, that all truth is tentative. So we can see philosophy still very much at work in the world today. And uh, uh, the influence is such that many people are probably not aware of the philosophical ideas except in some watered-down version, which to me uh, uh, makes another good argument for becoming familiar with the philosophical ideas as opposed to the popularized watered-down version of them. Because the watered-down version may not be accurate and may be misleading, and if you're 
goal is to find the truth, uh, you should probably go back to the source. Mm. Um, a, a modern writer like Albert Camus uh, can't be understood. He was a great writer, um, but he can't be understood apart from the existentialist background that he, he drew upon. Um, seeing life as absurd and, and seeing meaning being created by what we do with ourselves, what we choose to do with ourselves in the face of in incredible absurdity and violence around us. And you can make the same claim about uh, other disciplines as well. In, in a certain sense, you, you, you can't understand uh, the physics of today, if you're interested in understanding it, without understanding some basics of philosophy in the 18th and 19th century. Uh, you can't, in some sense, understand uh, basic principles of economics unless you understand something about the principles of the Enlightenment mm -hmm. philosophy of Locke and Kant. Nor, nor can you understand um, modern approaches to science without understanding the, the skeptics and, and the empiricists in philosophy. These classics still influence us today in our methodology, our approaches, our conclusions. So the philosophers are around, they're here to stay.